All right, this morning, the scripture that we're going to read is in Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. Happy birthday. Happy anniversary. One year. We did it. We made it. Give yourselves a hand. A family and friends that keep saying, has it really been a year? Uh, and I'm like, it sure felt like 52 Sundays, maybe a few more. Uh, but I want to say thank you so much to, uh, to everybody here, to everybody who has been serving, who has been leading, who has been giving, who has been sacrificing over the last year, over the last two years. And I know sometimes when a pastor says thank you, it can feel like thank you for helping me with my thing. That's not what I mean. I mean, on behalf of the entire church, as, as you look around and see the congregation that's being formed here, I think the entire congregation would say thank you for your, your contribution. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the way you've, you've prioritized this community's formation in your own life. And I think if we could see ourselves years down the road, 10 years down the road and beyond, our 10 years from now selves would say thank you as well. Thank you for this investment. Thank you for serving this city and serving this body so well. And it's because of you, because of your service, your, your presence here, even the simple things like, like showing up, going to community group, uh, giving financially, you know, serving in kids. These are not small things, but these everyday rhythms, this church is, is being formed. And where there was once no local church, now there's a local church. And, and years down the road, decades down the road, there will be a, a, a gathering of people that are singing the praises of the Lord because of the investments and the sacrifices you've made in the last year. And so in, in that sense, thank you. And, and it is such a, a blessing and, and just a, a wonderful thing to, to experience this. It has been just so, so encouraging to think about moving here with my wife three, uh, two, two years ago. So three boys, five friends, starting in our living room with a Bible study. And then on this day last year, on this Sunday last year, having 30 adults and 20 kids to, to formally launch the church. I mean, that in itself was a miracle. And then a year later to be at roughly 50 adults and 25 kids. 
I mean, it really is a, a miracle if you think about it. Where there was once not something, now there is something. Uh, it's remarkable. And so thank you so much for everything you've done, everything you've given, everything that you've, you've contributed to this body's formation. We have an incredible foundation going forward. And so it's because of you, because of your sacrifices, you can have a little bit of, uh, you know, righteous pride, you know, some appropriate pride in the fact that you've had a major role here. And then, of course, we give all glory to God who is, who is using us to build his church, to expand his kingdom as he promised that he would. So let's take a, a moment now as, as we're celebrating to, to go to him in prayer uh, and just say thank you to our Father. Father God, we are, we are just blown away with your, your goodness. We are overwhelmed with how you, you give us good gifts in life. You have given us the gift of your Son and salvation, but you have also given us the gift of one another. You've given us fellowship. You've given us community. You've given us a place where we can belong, where we have meaning and purpose. And then you use us to, to build and expand your kingdom. It's, uh, it seems too good to be true, Lord. Lord Jesus, we, we love you. We seek to, to honor you today. We seek to pattern our, our lives after your life. And we thank you for the ultimate sacrifice that you've made that makes sense of all of our little sacrifices. And then Holy Spirit, we, we invite you here as always, knowing that, that you are already among us, but as a way of preparing our hearts, we say, come Holy Spirit and fill our midst. Would you, would you fill our hearts? Give us joy and strength in you. Father, would you empower everything that we're doing, our, our praise, our fellowship, our ministry to the city. Spirit of God, continue this good work that you've begun in us. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we say thank you for, for gathering us as a new people. Would you protect us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us into, into year two? Would you lead us from here on as we seek to honor you and bless this city? We love you. We pray all this. In your son's name, amen. Well, in the, the year 64, uh, not, not 1964, not 1864, not Nintendo 64, that's my little joke, but in the year 64, the year of our Lord, 64 AD, there was a fire in Rome, a massive fire that wiped out almost the entire city. And, and the emperor of the Roman Empire, he sought to, to put blame on somebody for this massive fire. And so they blamed the, the Christians. They blamed this new sort of religious sect in their community that they didn't understand, these, these Christians that had sort of sprouted up out of nowhere. And if you think about it, what's remarkable about that in the year 64, it's that Christians could be so significant of a force in Rome, the most powerful city in the world, that they could actually be blamed for something as, as large as the, the fire of Rome. And so it was the year 33 that Jesus died, rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven. And according to Acts 1, it says there were only 120 believers at that time. And so the question is, how did this group of 120 believers in the year 33 become so significant but that by the year 64, they could be blamed across the entire Roman Empire? They were estimated by the, the Jewish and Christian historians to be about 20 or 30,000 people at that time. Rome is thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. And so they grew, they grew exponentially in just one generation, in just 30 years. And the question is, how did they do it? You might think, well, churches have grown to thousands of people, but this is totally different. There, there was no... Uh, 
there's no uh, background to this. There, there was no form of mass communication, no social media, no advertising. I mean, there's barely even roads between these cities, and yet Christianity exploded from 120 people to tens of thousands. Really, that was only the planting of the seeds because it was the, the hundreds and two hundreds and into the fourth century that Christianity began to grow into millions and millions of people. And so the question I want to ask this morning, as we've been looking at Romans 12 and, and the theme of belonging and community and the scriptures, is what do we know of these Christians after they received this letter? What do we know of, of their lives? What do we know that made them so compelling to people on the outside? And what made them so strong on the inside? What, what was true of their lives that, that thousands, tens of thousands of people wanted to know what, what was going on, what they believed, what they were teaching? The message of this series has been that belonging to God and one another enables a, a compelling and a powerful community. And so the three things that I want to look at are how in terms of how the early church was able to grow so quickly, the first thing is their message, the second thing is their lifestyle, and then the third thing is their prayer. So their, their message was good news, their, their lifestyle was hospitality, and then their, their prayer brought the power. Their prayer actually made things happen. God responded to their prayers. So let's start with the first thing, the early Christian's message. We began in Romans 12 with these first few verses where Paul says, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so he's saying in light of God's mercies, these specific acts throughout human history, these things that God has done to show us his mercy, in light of all this, give your life away or offer your body as a sacrifice and then be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which we said is to re Think our thinking. And so their message was to be transformed in light of God's mercies, these things that God has done in history through his son, Jesus Christ. The early Christian's message had three major components to it, and the first one is simply that God loves us. It's something we might even take for granted today and assume that everybody knows that God loves us, especially in the church. But imagine what a wonderful message this would have been to hear in the first century. To hear that God is, is true, that he's real, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-good, and that he loves us. It's the foundation of the entire New Testament. It's the foundation of the entire Old Testament as well. And so as the early Christians were going around telling the stories that Jesus had told and telling them about Jesus' life, their message was that God loves them. And so they spoke of Jesus' his parables, his, his way with people. The way he, he told him about the prodigal son who had a place in this kingdom as well as the self-righteous older brother who also had a place in the kingdom. He told him how the poor and the rich could find God's love, how the sick and the well could find God's love, the insider and the outsider. We are all able to find God's love. And so the first part of their message was simply that God loves us. And this message resonated deep in the hearts of those in Jerusalem and around the Greco-Roman Empire. And what seemed almost too good to be true at first began to sink in that God loves us. Romans 5 says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the second thing. The first thing is that God loves us. And the second thing is that Jesus died, was buried, and rose 
from the grave. Now, again, this is only maybe 20 years. Uh, the, the writing of Romans was 20, 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so this is not something you could make up very easily. We've talked before about the evidence for the resurrection as, as, a, as a true historical fact. And just 20, 25 years after this incredible event, Paul couldn't just write this to the Romans and, and get away with it if it hadn't actually happened, if there hadn't have been hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And maybe the best evidence of the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ is this very church that was formed. These 120 believers that multiplied into tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. And the fact that these early apostles all died for their faith. Why would they do it unless it was true? And so Jesus has died for us, but he's also risen. And in his resurrection, we have hope of a resurrection as well. And so that's the second thing. And the third thing. The third component of the good news that they were teaching was that God welcomes us into his family. The verse we've been looking at throughout this series is Romans 12, 5. It says, In Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. What we've seen throughout chapter 12 is that we belong not only to God, but we belong to the family of God. We have been adopted into God's very own family, so we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to him, and we belong to his people. We've said that true belonging is when you are fully known and fully loved. And think about in the, in the first century world how, how unbelievably good this would be to hear. That you can be fully known and fully loved. Otherwise, belonging is not really belonging. If we're asked to, to merely fit in, if we're, if we're asked to perform, to, to prove ourselves, to get into this spiritual group, if we're asked to, to act a certain way or dress a certain way or to be from a certain background, the early Christian's message is that God welcomes us wherever we are into his family and then forms this incredible new church from very ordinary broken people like us. And so in the first century, these people recognized that this was the best possible news. They recognized that all of their longings in life begin to make sense in Christianity. All the deepest things we've been hoping would be true are actually true here in Christ. We actually have a salvation that's not earned, but it's a gift. We actually have a new family that knows us and loves us just as we are. We have an eternal hope, the hope of life beyond the grave. This is only available in Christianity. And for me, as we've been going through this series on belonging and community, it's something that I've, I've been thinking about a lot. I've written some articles on this theme. And I've wondered why, why is that this, this particular theme matters so much to me? Why, why have I chosen this out of all the topics within Christianity? Why belonging in community? And the more I think about it, I think subconsciously or above consciously, I guess that's just consciously. What's going on is that I, within myself, I'm, I'm wired as a very individualistic person. I, I pretty much only think of myself most of the time. I'm also fairly introverted, and so I like having my space. It's easy for me to keep people at a distance. And so where the gospel has resonated most deeply with me and most personally with me and my soul is the fact that I can actually belong with God. I don't have to prove anything. I don't, I don't have to show off. I don't have to project a certain image of myself to God 
to be received. And then through being received by God, I actually get into this incredible new family. I'm actually unconditionally received by a people and all of the, the fears of being left out or being rejected or being turned away because I haven't done enough, I haven't done the right thing, I haven't proven myself. All of those fears deep within me hear the gospel and resonate with this component of it so much that we have a place to belong. It really is the best possible news that we belong to God, not to ourselves. And through Christ, we belong to one another. And so this was the message of the early Christians. And the second thing is, how, how do they communicate it? How do they, they get this word out? What was true of their lifestyle? And their lifestyle, it's, it's incredible. It's hospitality. From beginning to end, the, the lifestyle of the early church was hospitality. We read uh, over the last couple of weeks, verse 13, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then verse 21, which is sort of the, the summary statement at the end of the chapter. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you think about it, how, how would the early Christians have known what to do? There, there was no tradition. There was no handbook. There wasn't even a New Testament. How do these early Christians know how to establish their churches and how to do life together and how to come up with a lifestyle? The only thing they had to go on was the life of Jesus. And so these early Christians, they thought back to the time they had spent with Jesus himself and they looked at his life. And they saw him spending time with these 12 people, ordinary, everyday people, and investing his life deeply in them, entrusting his life to them, spending almost every waking moment in community, in fellowship with these people, pouring into them, loving them, serving them. And Jesus lived simply. He had few possessions. There was nothing to suggest he was trying to gain power or approval in the world. Jesus spent most of his time, as recorded in the Gospels, eating with people. Have you noticed that? In, in the Gospel of Luke, almost as you go from the beginning to end, Jesus is either at a meal, or he's going to a meal, or he's just come from a meal. It's remarkable. He, there's one Bible commentator that says he eats his way through the Gospel of Luke, and it's really true. Jesus did so much of his life in ministry over meals. Meals are incredibly significant. They were in that day and they are today. It's a, it's a sign of affirmation. It's a sign of, of openness, of welcome, of friendship. It's a sign that we've made room for one another at the table, that we've opened our lives to one another, that we're willing to identify with the other person as our friend. And it was important then, but it's especially important now. There was a book that came out in the last 10 years called The Big Sort. The Big Sort. And it, it describes how our culture has sorted people into all these small social groups. And so it used to be in, in previous generations that most conversations were had face-to-face -face in the context of a local community. But now, so much of our public conversation, it's actually at a distance. It's actually done virtually, whether it's through email or through social media. And we're now disconnected from an actual place, an actual neighborhood or community in, in so many of our relationships. 
And so whereas maybe you were at the barber shop and you were getting your, your hair cut and you express an opinion and then the person next to you expressed their you know, opinion and then you had a nice you know, cordial conversation and you left with an understanding of their perspective, now what happens so often is somebody puts something out on social media but the only people that follow them are people that already affirm all their own positions. And so they assume that everybody in the world that knows what they're talking about is agreeing with them. And they don't understand the viewpoints of another person. They don't have it actually in their mind as a personal opinion. It's just a view that's out there impersonally. And so people begin to, to dehumanize the views and perspectives of other people. And so we've been sorted into all these small social groups that are, they call them echo chambers. We only hear back what we want to hear. And so it's into this world, into this, into this culture, this, this hostility that the church can offer a place to belong. There's an old author, Henry Nouwen, he says, in our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture, and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. He says that is our vocation as Christians to convert the enemy into the guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. And so hospitality as we define it is the Christian act of, of creating space for people. It's, it's a distinctly Christian practice of creating space for people who are on the outside. And the great verse in Romans 15, 7 says, Welcome, embrace, and accept one another, just as God in Christ has welcomed, embraced, and accepted you. It's because as Christ has welcomed us and embraced us and, and welcomed us into this incredible family that we can offer that same hospitality to everybody on the outside, whether they agree with us or not, whether they're like us or not. We can create space in our, in our lives and in our schedules. We create homes and create space in our homes. We create space where we work. We create space in every aspect of our lives. We create margins so that we can offer a hospitable place to people on the outside. And there's a reason why Jesus did so much of this over food why he ate with both the poor and the rich, the insider and the outsider. It's because meals give us a sort of common ground. They give us a place where we can, we can share our humanity and our, our need, our need for food together. And over a meal, we can experience and we can practice this incredible hospitality. So think of a time somebody showed you hospitality. Think of a time maybe you, you arrived to a new neighborhood and, and a neighbor came over to, to greet you and welcome you. Maybe a time at work if you started a new job and somebody came alongside you and helped, helped you just understand the dynamics of the office or whatever it is, all those unspoken rules you've got to figure out. Maybe you showed up at a church for the first time and somebody came alongside you and said, you can come sit with me, we're really glad you're here. It could be a time when you were discouraged and somebody said, why don't we get coffee or why don't you come over for dinner and we can talk through it. All of us have received so much hospitality in our lives. And now, having been welcomed, receiving the ultimate welcome from God in Christ, now we can offer that to one another. We can offer it to each other here, but we can off 
also offer it to a world that is so desperate for a place to belong. So how can you show hospitality? And, and don't confuse hospitality with entertaining that you have to have, you know, don't let Pinterest tell you that you've got to have a certain size home or a certain kind of table or meal with all the accoutrement, you know? Don't listen to that. Biblical hospitality, it, it even blurs the line between who the host is and who the guest is. So when somebody invites you to something, you can say yes. When you see somebody who would like an invitation, you can take the initiative. We can't wait on other people to invite us in, but we, having been changed by Christ, go out and we offer a hospitable place to those on the outside. And so the early Christians, their message was good news, their lifestyle was hospitality, but even that wasn't the, the sort of secret to their growth. You can be hospitable, you can, you can share the good news, and yet nothing can happen. We've all experienced that. But out of all the things that we could look at in the early church, all the, the ways that they organized themselves, all the things that they did that we could explore, as we look into year two, what is it that the early church did that we should most try to emulate? I would say it's their prayer. It's impossible to look at, at the book of Acts and the record of the early church and miss how much and how boldly they prayed. And again, what did they have to go on but the life of Jesus? There was no tradition. They weren't, they weren't told this is how you need to do things. They simply looked at the life of Jesus and they saw powerful prayer. They knew that he spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying before he even began his public ministry. They saw him sneaking out of the house and leaving his disciples alone so that he could go and be with the Father and pray. He saw them praying, him praying over meals, praying over the sick, and they were healed praying for the weak and they were encouraged, praying for the broken and they were restored. He prayed out to the Father and then Lazarus came forth from the tomb. Everything Jesus did, he did in prayer and so everything the early church did, they did in prayer as well. In Acts 1, the disciples are all gathered in prayer when the Holy Spirit descends and fills them. In Acts 4, when they're facing persecution from the government, they gather to pray. In Acts 11, the church at Antioch is praying together. And again, the Holy Spirit descends and speaks and tells them to send some of their members to go start a new church in another place. Throughout the book, when people pray, the building is shaken, the Spirit comes, they're encouraged, they're unified, and things happen. Their prayers have power. It's as if God is, is just waiting for the people to pray so that he can bless them and multiply them and send them. And it's the same God who answered all of their prayers that we worship and pray to every day ourselves. There's no difference in, in the God who is answering prayers and doing an incredible thing in the first century. We don't have a different God now in the 21st century. And yet I read a statistic this week that the average Christian prays for one minute a day and the average pastor prays two minutes. I guess he gets asked to pray somewhere, you know. <laughs> I thought, man, it's, it's, so, it's so convicting to, to spend time looking at the, the record of the early church and then recognize how, how little prayer exists in my own life and heart. I read the, the story this week also of a young woman from Ghana 
She moved to England to study theology, hoping to get training and then go back to her country as a missionary. And she was asked in, in class and, you know, about her, her, how do people in Ghana try to reach people and, and gather them into the church. And so this is uh, how she recorded it later. She said, I shared briefly with them what we do in Ghana and indeed in all of Africa. Person-to-person -person evangelism is a daily practice. Prayer meetings with fasting take half of our preparation time for outreaches. When the battle is won in the spiritual realms and the bondages are broken, the physical battle is much easier and people are ready to come to the Lord. Every Friday, the whole country is covered with prayer from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. We call it all night prayer. Almost all the evangelical churches in Ghana have it on their programs. You're like, man, that is beautiful. How incredible that people would give themselves so fully to prayer, expecting that this same God who answered the prayers of Jesus, who answered the prayers of the early church, would answer our prayers as well. And I know for me, this past year of, of church planting, it's, it's moved me to prayer like probably nothing else other than maybe parenting. It's like parenting and church planting will make you pray a whole lot more. Desperation does that to you. And even still, as I look back on the past year, there's, there's, you know, there's nothing that I regret from the past year. We've done a lot of things that didn't really work. Church planting's a lot of trial and error, but there's nothing that I, I regret. But I do look back and, and wonder, what might we have missed by not praying more, by not, by not asking for more, not expecting more from the Holy Spirit? And it's one of the themes in my life. I don't have a lot that I look back and regret. I'm a fairly like careful person, but I look back and I think, what might I, uh, might I have missed? How much could we have missed in that first year simply by not asking more? And so I get the sense that the God, even if we are praying more than we have before, is saying, keep coming. Keep coming to me. There's so much more. There's so much more I want to do in your own heart, so much more I want to do in your relationship, so much more I want to do in your community, so much more I want to do in your city. As we enter year two, I'm thinking about the early church and the churches that are in Africa and Latin America and in Asia and the, the prayer that they have and the growth that they're seeing. And I wonder if we constructed lives in the West that we just don't need prayer. Have we established our lives and our churches in such a way that we don't need or expect any power from outside of us? And so what would it look like as, as a church to step more fully into prayer? In our gatherings, in our community groups, our leadership meetings, in our own personal lives and friendships with one another, what would it look like to become more intentional in prayer? I shared at our celebration dinner that we had about a week and a half ago that I, I feel a little bit like Lewis and Clark. If you know the Lewis and Clark story, they spent a year and a half paddling up the Missouri River thinking that it would lead them to the Pacific Ocean. If you've looked at a map, you know that it doesn't lead to the Pacific Ocean, it leads to the Rocky Mountains. So Lewis and Clark, they were river explorers and they had to leave behind their canoes and cross the biggest mountain range in North America to get all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And that's resonated with me because I feel like we've gotten to a place as a church where I've, I've done so much planning and so much thinking and it's gotten us, you know, a, a, it's gotten us here, but it's also not going to get us across the Rockies. There's no amount of 
planning, no amount of scheming, no amount of fundraising that's going to get us to where we want to be as a church. I can admit, and I'm fairly secure in this, that I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't really know what to do in year two. But what we do know and what we do have is this record of how God has worked throughout history. The life of Jesus, how he established his relationships, how he sought the Father's will for so much. The early church, how they relied on the Spirit, how they were moved to prayer, how they did so much of life in community together. I think about the miracle that's taken place among us, the growth that we've experienced, people coming to Christ, people's lives being changed from the inside out. And I'm reminded of all the promises of Jesus that he shared in the Gospels, all the parables that he told of the kingdom of God. How it would start so small and, and so seemingly insignificantly, and yet how it would grow so deeply and so profoundly. The New Testament gives us this inside-out vision, and when it speaks of the kingdom of God, it speaks of a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, growing into a great tree. And in that period of, of quiet and still growth, so much is happening. It speaks of a treasure hidden in a field, and it's costly. We give up our old treasures to attain it. But then it's the one thing that lasts, and it becomes more valuable every day. And I think of Jesus sharing about the great banquet that awaits us, where all the nobles and the well-off, the wealthy, they've, they've rejected their invitations, and they stand off at a distance, but it's the poor and the needy, us, that come into the banquet and feast with the king. Jesus' meals, they communicated so much. They created this space. But his meals weren't just for something else. But everything else was for a meal with Jesus. All of our lives, everything from God's creation to the cross to the new creation, all of that is so that we can have communion with Christ in the end. So that our entire lives would become a banquet feast with our Lord. So that our eternal lives, which have already begun now, can look more like feasting, that we have a place at the table with Christ. And for all eternity, throughout all of time, as all suffering has been wiped away and every tear has been wiped from every eye, all the sad things have come untrue, all the broken things are put back together. We have a place at the table. It's significant that Jesus, on, on his last night with his disciples, he shared one last meal with them. And going into the upper room, he prayed and he gave thanks. And he broke the bread, saying, This is my body, broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and said, This cup is the new covenant, which is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And in speaking of his death, he told them also of his resurrection and once again of his kingdom, which we so easily forget. But he invites us to the table. So every week at Trinity, we come forward and we share in this meal, which we call an appetizer, just something to, to get us ready for that eternal meal, something that makes us even hungrier for that eternal feast that awaits us. And so if you're trusting in Christ, you can come forward down the center aisle, break off a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine, which is marked by twine or the juice.
If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take of this meal and all that represents and embodies. We would say instead, would you take Christ? Would you believe in him? Would you put all of your hope in him? He's the only one who will satisfy. But if you are trusting in him as you come forward, you can say a prayer of gratitude and of thanksgiving. That you have been brought home. You have been given a family. You have been given a seat at the table. Let's pray.